Good morning, church. If you have your Bibles, let's open those up to Acts chapter 20, please. Acts chapter 20, we're going to be looking at verses 13 to the end of the chapter this morning. Uh, But before we jump in, I'd like to open us up with a word of prayer. So let's pray together. Father, we are grateful that we get to come to you and praise your name in this place. We get to come together as the family of God, brothers and sisters in Christ who are co-heirs with Christ, who will see so many promises fulfilled uh, when we get to see you someday. And Lord, it's difficult sometimes to stay focused on eternity when the busyness of life, the hardships of life come at us. Lord, I pray that we would be people who stay focused on eternity the way that the Apostle Paul uh, does as he goes throughout his ministry. And as we look at his time in Ephesus today, Lord, I pray that uh, we would be uh, mindful of all that he did there and all that you are calling us to do here. I ask you this in your son's precious name. Amen. So last week... At the beginning of Acts chapter 20, we saw Paul uh, leaving Ephesus after having been there for three years, pouring himself uh, into ministry there. And Luke, he tells us that before he goes, Paul sends for the disciples uh, of the church in Ephesus, and he offers encouragement to them before he takes off. And I stated that it probably could have been Uh, that he wanted to gather them up and help quell any of their doubts on the uh, reliability of the Christian faith because they had just seen a riot happen because of the work that Paul had been doing and the continuation of the gospel going forth in the city of Ephesus. Uh, They saw a riot come up, and these are new believers. And so it could have been that their faith was shaken. They may have wondered whether or not this whole thing that they're going to have to experience for the rest of their life was going to be worth it. And I stated that Paul may have brought them together to show them that even though they had all this vitriol, all this violence that was aimed at them, it is absolutely worth it to follow God. It's absolutely worth it to proclaim the gospel, even in difficult times and in difficult situations. And after this, after he had gathered the church together, we saw Paul begin his journey through Macedonia as he was gathering up an offering to take to the saints in Jerusalem. We're not told that this is why he was going to Macedonia in the book of Acts. We have to piece that together from other New Testament books, 1 Corinthians, Romans. They all point to this gathering together of this offering uh, to send to the church in Jerusalem uh, who are uh, financially struggling. But Paul has this promise of all these offerings and gifts from the Gentile churches uh, throughout Macedonia. And so he goes around to each one of them. He also encourages them as he goes, but he's gathering up this money in order to take this gift, this offering to the church in Jerusalem. And as he is beginning to wrap up uh, this journey through Macedonia, Paul and his group find themselves waiting in Troas where they spend a week ministering to the church. They are waiting on their ship to go. Uh, So they're waiting on the boat, and on the last night before the boat sailed, Paul takes the Lord's Supper, 
with the church there, and he taught them all night long. Right? He taught for so long that a young man named Eutychus fell asleep while sitting in a third floor window, and he falls to his death. And you would think that that would be the end of the evening, but no. Paul goes over, gives the dude a hug. He comes back to life. They take a, a dinner break, do the Lord's Supper, and then Paul starts again and teaches up till dawn. And so it says when he leaves, the boy is taken home and the church is greatly comforted. Now, whether that comfort was from the, the boy being resurrected from the dead or just their experience with Paul is up in the air, uh, but it was probably both. Right? They see this miraculous act, I mean, just certifying that all that Paul is saying is true and accurate, and then they got to spend that time with the Apostle Paul. Uh, and that's always going to be a good time. Uh, in our passage this morning, we're going to see that uh, Paul is going to gather the Ephesian elders in the town of Miletus in order to tell them goodbye one last time. And he's going to give them some final exhortations uh, on leading the church in Ephesus. He's going to tell them goodbye because he has no expectation of ever seeing them again. Right? The reason for that is that the Holy Spirit is informing him as he's going through these travels that he's going to go into chains and affliction when he gets to Jerusalem. But the Holy Spirit is pushing him towards Jerusalem. So this isn't one of those things that you can tap out of. I said before last week when he was planning on going to Syria, the Jews were planning on coming at him in Syria. And so he changed his plan because it wasn't God's plan for him to be accosted by the Jews in Syria. He is meant to go to Jerusalem. But with the fact that he is going to Jerusalem, that is not one of those things that is negotiable. The Holy Spirit is leading him there and Paul is resolute to make his way there. Uh, and so with this knowledge in mind, he's telling the Ephesian elders goodbye. And there's one final exhortation for them as he goes uh, because he knows that the leaders in the church are going to face difficulties as he moves, moves on. He knows there's hardship coming for them and he wants them to steal their mind, steal their heart, and be ready to endure all that may be coming and to be willing to guard the flock uh, of the sheep that the Holy Spirit has given him or has given to them. Now, even though this passage is primarily focusing on elders, overseers, pastors, all those words are interchangeable. All right, even though it is primarily focusing on their role and responsibility in the church, it would be a mistake at this point for you to check out and to say, this doesn't have anything to do with me because I'm not an elder, overseer, or a pastor. Right? We all have the responsibility to follow Paul's example in this chapter, all right, in this passage. We have an, a responsibility to follow his character and serve the church in the way that he selflessly did for most of his life. And so just because we're talking to elders or Paul's talking to elders and overseers and pastors today, that doesn't mean that you need to check out at this point. Dial in. All right, so give me a sec. Dry it out. So when we look at the first few verses here, it's really just a travel agenda. It's just Paul hopping from one place to the next. Let's look at it. Verses uh, 13 to 16. It says, we went on ahead to the ship and sailed for Azos, where we were going to take Paul on board because those were his written instructions, or his, him, sorry, were his instructions since he himself was going by land. 
When he met us at Azos, we took him on board and went to Malit. Sailing from there, the next day we arrived off Chios. The following day we crossed over to Samos, and the day after we came to Miletus. For Paul had decided to sail past Ephesus to avoid spending time in the province of Asia because he was hurrying to be in Jerusalem, if possible, for the day of Pentecost. So here it's just a travel log, and we see them hopping from one place to the next after they boarded the ship from Troas. Now Luke doesn't give any details about anything that happens uh, in these stops on the way to Jerusalem, probably because very little happened. It's just they're, they've got their eyes set for Jerusalem and they're making a point to get there. And so they're just blowing through these cities. Uh, Paul wants to be in Jer- Jerusalem before the Pentecost celebration occurs. And so it seems as though the Lord has blessed their way there and Luke doesn't have anything worthy of telling Theophilus uh, about this journey. Um, For some reason, as he's going on, we're not told why, but Paul decides to go on foot from Troas to Azos uh, while he traveled by land. I mean, uh, apparently it is faster to walk there than it is to sail there. Uh, It's about a 20-mile walk. Uh, And it would actually have been faster going that way than going by boat, but we don't know why he did that or why he did it alone. So he sends the group by boat. He walks. um, And so really the only thing that we're given in this whole, these three verses uh, about why Paul is doing what he's doing is he made a conscious decision not to stop uh, in Ephesus on the way. And the reason for that is that he's on a time crunch. He is trying to arrive in Jerusalem by a specific time, and he doesn't want to risk getting bogged down in Ephesus. That could be for two reasons, really. It could be that uh, he's trying to avoid any potential problems among the people that had rioted against him there. He's been gone for about a year, but I'm sure that they're going to remember his face and who he is. If Paul comes in, the church gets excited about that, they're going to know, and it could they could plan against him and try to keep him uh, from uh, either staying longer or doing any kind of ministry there. Uh, so they could try to delay him. Or it could have been that after being there for three years, after serving with blood, sweat, and tears in this place and building these relationships, he loves these people and he understands that if I go there, it's not going to be a quick trip. Right? Do you have those people that you, like, you look at your watch before you make phone calls because you know it's not going to be a quick conversation? Or you plan out the rest of the day, all right, so I'll do this, I'll, I'll have to have lunch first, and then I'll go meet Aunt Nancy at you know, such and such, and then that, that's the rest of the day gone, right? Well, so that's what he's anticipating happening if he actually goes to Ephesus. And so um, he decides that he's going to sail past Ephesus. So he goes roughly 30 miles past Ephesus to Miletus, and from there uh, he does does have one thing that he wants to do before he moves on to Jerusalem. He wants to have a conversation with the Ephesian elders one last time before going into unknown but certain trouble in Jerusalem. And now as we look at this, I want to break this small section up into three primary teaching sections and then we have the farewell. All right, we'll look at Paul's past ministry among the Ephesians. We'll look at the future struggles that are guaranteed for him in Jerusalem and we'll look at Paul's exhortation to the elders as he expects hardship to arrive for arise for them after he's gone 
And so we're going to start off with Paul's past ministry among the Ephesians, which is verses 17 to 21. It says, Now from Miletus, he sent to Ephesus and summoned the elders of the church. When they came to him, he said to them, You know, from the first day I set foot in Asia, how I was with you the whole time, serving the Lord with all humility, with tears, and during the trials that came to me through the plots of the Jews. You know that I did not avoid proclaiming to you anything that was profitable or from teaching you publicly and from house to house. I testified to both Jews and Greeks about repentance towards God and faith in our Lord Jesus. All right, so these, these people know the Apostle Paul, right? And he knows them because he worked hard teaching them and serving by their side as they served in ministry together among the people of Ephesus. And Paul points out to several characteristics of his ministry that he wants to bring to their attention. There could be a couple of reasons why Paul wants to point out his service to them. Uh, one, in other churches, namely in the church in Corinth, Paul came under some intense scrutiny as people tried to discredit him as an apostle. Like, oh, you think Paul's an apostle? Well, we're super apostles. You think Paul can speak? We can speak better. You think Paul can serve, we can serve better. And so something like this may have been happening in Ephesus. Uh, so he may be trying to say, hey, remember how I served you. Remember how I served with you. Day by day, we were putting our shoulder into the church and driving it forward, pushing back the darkness. You know me. You know the character that I had as I served with you. And he's just calling that back. Uh, and the second reason, uh, he may be doing this to use himself as an example for how to persevere through the hardship that he knows is coming for them. Right? If, you're, if you're going to struggle, you need to have the right character and able to do that in a way that glorifies God. And Paul knows all too well what it's like to struggle in ministry. And so he says, hey, look at me. Look at how I struggled. Right? But for whatever reason that Paul is bringing this to their attention, there are four aspects of his character and ministry that we're going to consider. The first is his humility. Paul talks about humility. And this is interesting because the word can go one of two ways. He could be saying, hey, look at my humility. But if you know anything about humility, you know that that's problematic. Right? Because just as soon as you point out your humility, you're no longer humble. Right? So he, he's saying, hey, the way it's translated here, he says, look at my humility. And he could be talking about the lack of pride, and he might not be prideful about that, but it does seem a little odd that that is translated as humility. Look at my humility, how humble I am. Because I can assure you, if anybody other than Jesus or the Apostle Paul says, hey, look how humble I am, they're not humble at all. But another way to look at this, another way to translate this is his humiliation. Right? I did not serve you with humility. I served you in humiliation. Right? We know that everywhere Paul goes, he gets someone's trying to obstruct what he's doing. He's constantly being come against in some way, shape, or form. And it could be, and I like this translation better because it goes better with the other things that he mentions. It could be, you remember how I served you in my humiliation. 
how hard I worked, how much I strive to, to be less than important, but yet to lead you in a way that honors God. And yet all these people are coming against me. They were probably slandering him and, and just, I mean, maybe they were physically abusing him in some way, shape or form. But he says, possibly here, remember how I served you in my humiliation. Remember how I served you as people came against me. It also says that he served with tears. Now, again, depending on how we translate this, we can take this one of two ways, and both ways are good. All right, We should serve in both of these ways. But the first could be he had tears of empathy. Right, He's serving alongside with these people for three years. He loves them. He's, he's striving to be in their lives. And when they hurt, he hurts. Right? He, he wants to know their ups and downs of their life. And when they cry, like, I don't know if you know this about me, but I happen to be an empathetic crier. So, right, if you break down, I might break down with you. So we can cry together if you ever need that. Uh, and that could be the way that we're to interpret this. Or it could also have been tears for himself and thinking about how difficult it was for him to do that ministry. Now, I don't know about you, but when I think about the Apostle Paul, I think superhuman. I think, you know, he's not Jesus, but probably right under there in the, in the pyramid. You know what I mean? And so a lot of times we think about Paul as being something more than just a man. And he's going to struggle. It's going to be difficult for him to, to face all this hardship over and over and over again. Sure, the Holy Spirit strengthens him. He, he walks by faith. And it doesn't seem like he stutters in that faith. But you can't take beatings every other day, get shipwrecked, have people speak ill of you, and have it not affect you in some way. So he could be talking about here about his own tears. Right? I served you in humiliation. I served you through my own hardship, my own difficulties. I was there for you in the midst of all of that. And he talks very specifically about his trials. And that's one of the reasons why I think his humiliation and the tears point well to this idea rather than humility. But he talks about the trials that he faced from the Jews uh, that were apparent to everyone around him. You can't be around the Apostle Paul long without someone coming against you. And these men, working side by side with him for three years, were going to see these trials. They probably faced some of them as well. And that's from the Jews. We also saw uh, in chapter 19 that a silversmith named Demetrius riled up the city against him and, and started a riot. So it's not just the Jews that are coming against him. It's also the Gentiles. It's the whole unbelieving world do not want Paul to do what God has called Paul to do. And he says, you saw me serve you through my trials. You were with me. We shouldered that burden together. And then he also talks about his preaching and teaching. Paul says that he proclaimed everything that was profitable for them, both publicly and from house to house. Now, I don't know if you know this or not, but there's some hard stuff in the Scriptures. There's some difficult things that I guarantee you, if I took the time to preach on them, that it would step on your toes. Right? It's supposed to. It's supposed to be a reflection to us that we're not Jesus and that we need Jesus. And so there's some very difficult things in Scripture. Probably one of the most difficult, especially for non-believers, is this idea that you're not good deep down in your core. Paul says in Romans 3 that there are none good. There are none who pursue after God. And people don't like to hear that. You mean if I don't believe what you believe, then I'm going to hell? 
Well, I believe that if you don't have a relationship with Jesus Christ that atones for your sin, you absolutely are going to hell. Guess how well that goes over? Not well. Right? What about the times when you have believers in the church even who are maybe wandering away from the faith and Paul says, take those people and cast them out before Satan in hopes that they will come back to the truth, the, the realization that how they're living their life is not correct and they're acting as a non-believer, so we're going to treat them as a non-believer. How do you think that goes over? Not well. Right? What about when you've got marital struggles and you have a pastor or someone else who loves you that is teaching you that you're supposed to love and sacrifice for those people and you're like, they're not loving and sacrificing for me. Why should I do that? And you tell them because God called you to do that. Right? You're responsible for your actions, not their actions. You treat them the way that Christ would treat them. How do you think that goes over? I had a conversation with a woman once. Husband, wife, they're having trouble. Husband wanted to move somewhere. The wife didn't want to go. She called me wanting to know what I would do and wanting to know if I would speak to the husband. And my response to her was, I will speak to your husband, but your role, according to Ephesians 5, is to submit to the leadership of your husband. He wanted to go find a better opportunity for their family, or at least that's the way he's presenting it. So I told her, according to Scripture, this is how you should handle that. And she said, never come to my house again. Right? When we hear things that we don't like, being up here can be very, very difficult from time to time. Right? When, we're, when our sin is called out, when we're told to love and sacrifice for people, and we don't want to do that, it can be very difficult. And Paul says, I shied away from nothing. I taught you everything that you needed to know, everything that was good for you from Scripture. I did not step back from it. I proclaimed it proudly. I proclaimed it publicly and from house to house. So if you refuse to listen to me here, I'm coming to your house and I'm going to tell it to you again there. That's what Paul said. So he served them in his humiliation. He served him through tears, whatever that looked like. He served him them through trials, and he proclaimed the gospel proudly without shrinking back from anything. And from this, Paul then moves into what is awaiting him in the future in verses 22 to 27. Follow along as I read that. He says there, And now I'm on my way to Jerusalem, compelled by the Spirit, not knowing what I will encounter there, except that in every town the Holy Spirit warns me that chains and afflictions are waiting for me. But I consider my life of no value to myself. My purpose is to finish my course and the ministry I receive from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of God's grace. And now I know that none of you among whom I went about preaching the kingdom will ever see me again. Therefore, I declare to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all of you because I did not avoid declaring to you the whole plan of God. So here Paul, like Jesus, sets his face towards Jerusalem. Here, Paul, like Jesus, knows that there are struggles awaiting him. Now, I have no doubt that Jesus knew what was coming for him. Paul, on the other hand, does not know what's coming for him, but he knows it's not going to be fun. 
He knows that his freedom is at stake. He knows that potentially his life is at stake. But in the midst of all that, he says he considers his life to have no value. Now, this isn't saying that Paul has low self-esteem. I don't think anybody could actually read the words of Paul and think that Paul has low self-esteem. Right? Anybody that can say, say, follow me as I follow Christ, that's a confident man. Right? So this is not saying that Paul has low self-esteem. By saying that his life has no value, he's pointing to the fact that we all live for something. Right? We all have something that we value in our life that we strive for. Right? It's something I talk all the time about your time, your talent, and your treasure. Right? There is something in your life that you are willing to give up your time, your talent, and your treasure for. And whatever that is, is your primary affection in this life. I've told You can look at your checkbook and your calendar and you can see what your, your priorities are. Right? How you spend your time and how you spend your money is a good indication of the things that you value in this life. Right? For many, if not most people, we spend that time, talent, and treasure on ourselves. Right? Yeah, that's just the nature of our heart. Right? It might take on a different form. Right? It might not just be like me going to the store and be like, I'm getting a big screen TV, and then I'm getting a video game system to play on that TV, and then I'm going to buy myself a new car, and I'm going to do all this for me, 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 me. It may not look directly like that. It may come in the form of like our family or our job or whatever it is where we find value. Right, We will spend our effort in that, and we derive something from it. Right, It might be our own laziness or pleasure or whatever all right we might take pride in being the top of our job whatever that job is we may take pride in that so we will give our time talent and treasure to arrive at that place but i can assure you we are all spending that time talent and treasure on something and for paul his focus was all about the ministry that jesus had given him all right paul has never forgotten the road to damascus he has never forgotten the fact that Jesus showed up, blew him off his horse, blinded him, and offered him mercy, grace, and forgiveness when he deserved destruction. Paul has never gotten over that. He has never gotten over that Jesus would sacrifice himself for him knowing who he is and knowing what he's done. Right? Because Paul has a firm grasp on the gospel, he knows that there is nothing more meaningful in this life than serving God. Nothing. Nothing better that you can pour out your time, your talent, and your treasure on. Right? He knows. He knew from the start that his ministry was going to be full of suffering. Right, when Jesus told Ananias in Acts chapter 9 to go speak to Paul and pray for Paul, he says, tell that man how much he's going to suffer in my service. And Paul looks at the gospel. He sees everything that it offers and he looks at the hardship of this promised life and he says it's worth it. The gospel is worth it. It's worth anything that I could pour out. It's so much better than anything that life could give me. 
The gospel is worth it. And so he pours himself out into the ministry that God has given him. Now, we don't all serve the way that Paul served. Right? Some of us are called to different things. Right? Paul's main focus, the main thing that he did with his life was to uh, work at sharing the gospel, but Paul wasn't married. Paul didn't have any children that, we, that we're aware of. Right? To be a Pharisee, he had, was probably married before, but it's believed, I mean, we don't know this, but it's believed that she probably died. And, I mean, that frees him up to serve. Right? He says, if you can be single in this life, if you can handle that burden, which it is a burden for some, if you can handle that, then be single because that gives you a whole lot more time for ministry. It gives you a whole lot more expendable income to pour out on ministry. You don't need as much money for yourself if it's just you. But if you have a spouse, that's your first ministry. Right? That's... Priority number one, God, spouse, kids, church, job, or whatever else it is that you do. In that order. This is how we are to pour ourselves out. And God's going to give us different callings in life. So it's not going to look exactly like what Paul did, but we should make sure to take away this idea that the gospel is supreme. There's nothing greater to pour yourself into, to devote your life to. Paul's primary focus is on eternity, and that's why he says he's guiltless before of the blood of the people in Ephesus. Right? He gave them the whole counsel of God, all the hard stuff, the good stuff, and everything in between. He gave it all to them. He didn't shy back from any of it, and he says what you have done with that is up to you. But as far as I am concerned, I poured my life out there for three years and I gave you everything that there was to give you in those three years. And so what you do with it is up to you. I am free of your blood. It is our job to make sure people understand the gospel. It's our job that... God has placed around you people who are supposed to come to hear at least about the beauty of the gospel because of your lips. And it is your responsibility to speak to them about the realities of God's condemnation and the possibilities of eternal salvation through the atoning sacrifice of Jesus. I forget, I forget the passages. It's, it, but somewhere in Ezekiel, Paul is talking to the prophet and he says, if I tell you to go speak to these people and you do and they don't change, that's not on you. But if I tell you to go talk to those people and you don't, oh, they will still be condemned. But it is on you. That is your responsibility. And you can't get around that responsibility for any believer in this room. Right? Our responsibility, we were given the great commission because we have the greatest news on earth and people are truly, literally dying and going to hell and we have the way to keep that from happening. And they need to hear it. They need to hear it 
from our lips because we are the ones that God has called to do that. And he's going to hold us to account for how we spent our lives, how we spend that time, talent, and treasure. God is going to hold us to account for that. Like it's not going to be an eternal account because of Jesus. Right? Nothing we do can change the way that God sees us if we are in Christ. Because when God sees you, he doesn't see you. He sees Jesus. Right? So this isn't about earning salvation, but he has given us a job. He's given each and every one of us a ministry. Right? Paul in Ephesians chapter 4 says he gave some to be apostles, some to be evangelists, some to be preachers and teachers. Why? Because you need to be built up in your ministry. He doesn't say that I gave you all these people so that they could do all the ministry so you could come hear some music and, and hear a sermon and go about the rest of your week and never give Jesus another thought. He said, no, these people, these people that he's speaking to right now, your reason for being, your calling into that ministry is so that you can equip other believers for their ministry. Paul poured his life out for that. And he says, I am guiltless of it all because of how I have served you. And lastly, Paul reminds the Ephesian elders, that they need to protect themselves spiritually as well as the church in verses 28 to 35. Let's look at that. It says there, Be on guard for yourselves and for all the flock of which the Holy Spirit has appointed you as overseers to shepherd the church of God which he purchased with his own blood. I know that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. Men will rise up even from your own number and distort the truth to lure the disciples into following them. Therefore, be on alert, remembering that night and day for three years I never stopped warning each one of you with tears. And now I commit you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and to give you an inheritance among all who are sanctified. I have not coveted anyone's silver or gold or clothing. You yourselves know that I worked with my own hands to support myself and those who are with me. In every way, I've shown you that it is necessary to help the weak by laboring like this and to remember the words of the Lord Jesus because he said it is more blessed than receive. So he has this final exhortation to these elders. Like what would the last thing that you said to someone that you knew you would never see again, what would be the thing that you left them with? This is what Paul said. He says, be on guard for yourselves and for the flock. Because there will come ravenous wolves who, whose whole existence is on destroying that which God has built up. That which is so much valuable that Jesus shed his blood to purchase. There are people who will come up, it says even among your number, who will strive to tear down what has been built up here. They want to be important. They want to have you focused on them instead of on Jesus. And he says, you have to guard yourself from that. Right? He said from among your own number. Now, that could mean that among the church that they are shepherding, right? He, that might be a broad, like, y'all, right? Among y'all. And that could be the whole church. Or it could have been from the elders themselves. 
Right? These people that have been called to shepherd God's flock. It could be among them that they come up and they get filled with pride. They get filled with this, this desire to be worshipped rather than point to the only one worthy of worship. And he says, you must guard yourself. Right? I'm, I'm not above falling headlong into sinfulness, pridefulness, struggle with any sort of things. I know my heart. And so I must guard myself. And you need to be self-aware enough of who you are outside of Christ to know that you need to guard yourself too. Right? It's not, it's not enough just to not do the things that you think about. Right? God holds us accountable for the, th the thoughts that we have as well. And if we allow thoughts to fester in our mind, eventually they will manifest in some way in our life. Right? So that might be my importance. I don't know why the church doesn't listen to me. Have you met me? I'm amazing. And then I come in here one day and I try to get something to go through and everybody votes it down because it's a stupid idea. And I start puffing my chest out like, don't you know who I am? Right. I'm not above that. And so I try to guard my heart to remind myself of who I am outside of Christ. For heaven help me for who I am inside of Christ. I am an awful person in here. I got a good filter. But legit, like, I wouldn't save me. I, I know my heart. I know how much I need to guard that against my own personal sin nature, against my own desire for grandeur. Whatever that happens to be, I have to guard my heart. And he's telling the, the leaders, you guard your heart so that you can also help the other people in the church guard theirs. Because some of these people, some of these wolves may be coming up out of their numbers. And if not, then those are the people that are going to be devoured. Right? You're either predator or prey in this scenario. And he says, guard the flock, protect the flock for which the Holy Spirit has appointed you as overseers. You have a responsibility. And right? I have a responsibility to this church to protect it. To come after those who might throw something out there that goes against the gospel. Who's trying to push sinful ideas and programs so that they can wrestle away focus and control from the Holy Spirit. Paul says, I, I warned you every day, every night for three years with tears. Be ready. Like you're going to be challenged. Be ready. You talk to yourself more than anybody else talks to you. Be ready. Listen for the ungodliness that's coming out of your thoughts. Take those under control. Right? Take every thought captive, Paul says. Be ready. Be a, a contributing member of this flock. Help everyone else. Right? As I said before, when I'm weak, you're strong. When you're, when you're weak, I'm strong. And so we can... Guard each other in this. And Paul says, I commit you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and to give you an inheritance among all 
who are sanctified. The whole focus of our lives needs to be on this word of His grace. Everything about your life needs to center around the gospel. And it's going to change how you act. It's going to change how you interact with one another and stuff. And he says there in verse 33, I have not coveted anyone's silver or gold or clothing. Now this is, this is an odd little thing to wrap up with. Right? I think I put our, would have probably put the exclamation point at the end of like, I am not guilty of your blood. And then I just step out, right? But he says, I didn't covet any of your stuff. That there might have been an accusation against him that he was only in it for the money. Right? So he's addressing this as he leaves. This is also not all that he said. I mean, he's, it was probably about a three-day travel from Ephesus to Miletus. And so this is not all he said. Right? Something that you could send out in a tweet and be like, all right, guys, catch y'all later. Right? That's, not, that's not how this worked. You're not traveling a full week's worth of travel to get there for, for you know, 12 verses. But he says, I didn't covet any of your stuff. He said, I understand that it is better to give than to receive, and you need to understand that as well. Right? When you've got leadership that is so wrapped up in their own importance and so wrapped up in the idea of becoming wealthy, you have a recipe for disaster in the church. But don't be fooled, because that can happen in your home as well. Right? If your idea is wrapped up in your importance and your sole focus is on making as much money as you possibly can, this life is not going to go well for you. And eternity is going to be even worse if you don't know Jesus and that's your pursuit. I'm not sure, as I've said, I don't know what, I don't know what rewards look like in heaven because I can't understand what, it would, what could be any better than being in the presence of Jesus. But we're promised rewards. Does that mean more time with Jesus? I'm all for it. I don't know when it says that we're going to be held account. Like the Bible says that I will be held to a stricter judgment than you will. What does that mean? Like, I'm in Christ. Where's my judgment? What do you, what? So you can, you better believe that I am trying my best because I believe it. I believe all of it. I am trying my best to do to honor you guys as much as I can with the service that God has placed in my life because I believe it. I believe that I'm going to be held to a stricter judgment. I don't know what it means, but I believe it. And as you go from this place, I want you to know that you're being held to account as well for how you live your life, where you spend your time, your talent, and your treasure. And we really, really need to do our best to show ourselves as one approved. Right? So Paul wraps this up and he says, after this, he knelt down and prayed with all of them. There were many tears shed by everyone. They embraced Paul and kissed him, grieving most of all, over his statement that they would never see his face again. And they accompanied him to the ship. So Paul's heading out. He's heading towards this destination that promises trouble, hardship, struggle, strife, and eventually his death. I don't know if he knows that yet or not, but this is how this goes. Spoiler alert, in case you haven't read to the end of the book. But 
Paul is marching resolutely into the face of danger and hardship because he believes that the gospel is better. He's leaving behind these people that he loves dearly because he believes that the gospel is better. Right? He sacrificed when he was serving them because he believes that the gospel is better. And we have this call on each of our lives to sacrifice for the, the betterment of other people because the gospel is better. To put ourselves out there to, to potentially ruin relationships because people don't want to be with someone that's going to spout this gospel nonsense. Right? So we could ruin relationships. The gospel is better. We could lose jobs because of the standards that we hold. The gospel's better. But we must take stock of our character in the midst of all this. As we go from this place, you are representing Jesus. Are you humble? Do you love people enough to cry empathetic tears when they are broken? Are you willing to be steadfast in your faith no matter what struggle or trial comes about? Are you well-versed enough in the Scripture to preach and teach as you go? God may not give you a pulpit to stand behind. He may not give you a, a, a microphone to speak into. But we all have the mission of speaking the truth to all those who are perishing. Are we doing that? Let's pray together. Father, I'm so grateful for your word. I'm grateful that we have the opportunity to use it as a mirror to see if our life matches up to that of Jesus. Lord, I'm grateful for people like the Apostle Paul who do not value their life to the point where they're willing to push aside struggle for the betterment of the kingdom of God. Help me to be one of those people. Help us all to be people who do not shy away from sharing and proclaiming the gospel no matter what may come at us. Lord, help us to be a, a people who are constantly together protecting one another as Wolves will attempt to destroy the church. Help us to be uh, brothers and sisters who are watching one another's backs. Lord, as we go from this place, help us to have the mindset of Paul that there is nothing greater to pour our life out, our time, our talent, our treasure, than kingdom things. Because nothing else will last for eternity. I ask all of this in your son's precious name. Amen.